join us this morning. I'm glad that you are here. I hope that you had a good week. Um, you know, if you know anything really about me, you know that I like humor. You know I like to tease. I love a good dad joke and pun. I groan, or I, I live for the groaning and for the eye rolls. It just, it makes me know how good that dad joke is. And I think that uh, each person is impacted a little bit differently. And I think that you know me well enough to know some of these that I'm going to share with you this morning. I mean, I think that you're smart enough to know that a normal joke becomes a dad joke when it becomes a parent. Thank you for that one. Um, You know, with dad jokes, they have these moments of realization. You know, it's similar to like when you're staring off into space and you see this ball getting bigger as it's coming closer to you. And you don't know why until it hits you. You know, that's how a dad joke works. And And I love this body because you guys understand what I'm saying to you. You know, I tried to share and explain these experiences to one of the groups that I was counseling with. It was a group of kleptomaniacs. And it was hard because they take everything literally. (laughs) You have to know that word to be able to get that one. Some thinkers in there. But you know, jokes, they're timeless. I'm thinking of another joke, how the past, present, and future walk into a bar. It was tense. I love it. (sighs) Jokes, they make us smile. They give us some lightheartedness. Sometimes we go through some hard things in life. Sometimes topics that we talk about are difficult. And today is no exception. Today we're going to be talking about the apocalypse. And it's okay if you don't know what that means. It's not like it's the end of the world. You know? (laughs) Last one for a while. Last one for a while, I promise. But you know, they're great because it's a play on words. You know, and depending on how well you understand the language, how well you understand terminology, depends on how well you get the jokes. And I've always enjoyed that format. It keeps things kind of lighthearted. But you know, when you find yourself in more serious situations, when you have words that have different meanings, when you have Moments where you don't know if somebody's being sarcastic or serious. It can be difficult to weigh through those, those areas. And today, we're going to come upon a portion of Scripture that Jesus is going to be talking about destruction, about the end times, about his return. And it's going to be hard to follow, and it's going to be kind of confusing, because everything is so entangled, intertwined in how he gives it. It's almost like my love of puns has trained me for passages like this. Again, joking a little bit. But it's, it can be confusing. So as we go through this morning, um, we're going to finish up Jesus' teaching portion of the temple. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke 21. And I'm going to begin in verse 5 this morning. Verse 5. And while some were still or sorry, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, 
He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of the wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famine and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, uh, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends." And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they know that its desolation has come near, or then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in, on the world. For the powers of, heavens, of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Father, as we go to this word today, Lord, it is timely. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to give us strength and hope in your truth, uh, in your word, and in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, 
Obviously, this is a longer passage. I had looked most of the week at how to break this up into two weeks, but it's just better to handle all of this in one chunk. So we're going to kind of do more of a general overview, but by all means, continue to go through this passage and dive deeper through the week. Um, overall, we want to keep in the context that Jesus is still speaking in, in the hearing of everyone here. You know, so you have the Sadducees, the scribes, the people, the disciples um, that he is speaking to. And Jesus is going to give them a teaching that will help them understand a few things. He's going to talk about the impermanence of everything apart from God and his kingdom. He's going to talk about destruction and judgment that is going to be coming. And for the disciples, how they needed to persevere in the hard times. So these are kind of three themes or areas that as you're reading this, I want you to kind of take notice of today. Um, impermanence, just a word meaning not permanent. You know, you think of the world that we live in and what we rely on each day that we just depend on to be there. Whether it's the electricity when we flip on a light switch, our jobs to be there for 40 years with benefits and retirement, our homes, um, the grocery store just to have food in it or toilet paper. You know, we think about our nation, our status as a superpower. We think of, uh, about our bank accounts. There's a lot of things that we rely on, that we have security in, in this life. And, and Jesus is getting this point across that all of these things will pass away. You know, a key verse there in verse 33 says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. History has shown us the frailty of human leadership and what we put our dependence on. These things that we put our security in here in this life are not permanent. You know, we can, we can lose our jobs, our spouses, our children, our bank accounts, our nation. Aren't we just another line of superpowers that will one day fall? What is left when all of that is gone? What is left when what we hold on to for security is taken away? You know, and here as this passage is opening up in verse 5, the people are marveling at the temple. They're looking at how grand and how magnificent it is. The temple is the center of the Jewish culture. It was beautiful. You know, we have some rendering drawings of what it could look like. You know, this would include the Temple Mount area as well. The Temple Mount is four football fields wide and five football fields long. It's made of limestone and marble in a lot of the areas. It would look amazing from the distance. You know, some of the walls are adorned with gold. Pillars along the outside are 40 foot tall. The noble stones that are mentioned here. Now, I'm not sure exactly which ones they would be pointing to, but there are stones in the foundation that measure 41 feet by 11 feet high by 12 feet wide, estimated to weigh 570 tons. Magnificent, grand, beautiful. This is what the Jewish people would be putting their hope and security in. Herod had begun a project to build up the temple. 
you know, to, to make it look more adorned. And this project wasn't finished until 63 A.D. Seven years later in 70 A.D. is when the temple is destroyed. But their hope was in this building. Whether it was because it looked so noble and so grand, because of maybe their belief that this is where God was going to meet with his people. So they open up, marveling at this building. And Jesus just kind of pours cold water all over it. In verse 6, he says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's kind of a downer statement, don't you think? I mean, they're sitting here reveling in their magnificent, and Jesus is just like, yeah, it's not going to last. It's going to be gone. So then they ask for a sign. Now, I think that their heart in this is different in how they're asking. You remember before, Jesus says the only sign that this generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. You know, here I believe that they're, they're in the middle of this temple project. They understand uh, what's going on, that it's not completed. And I would say that the people that are asking are at least God-fears, as it would say in the Old Testament, and they understand history. This is the second temple. They know that the first temple was destroyed, that it was taken down, so they can realize, hey, this can happen again. So I believe they're worried about another exile. They're worried about what this would mean in terms of the destruction of the temple. Because if you destroyed the temple as the center of the Judaist, or the Jewish culture, it would eliminate Judaism as they currently practice it, as they know it. It would probably mean dispersion at best, slavery again, death, imprisonment, beatings. So they wanted to learn from that history. And what follows here is kind of this, this confusing message from Jesus as he's intertwining the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, and his second coming. He kind of weaves back and forth through these events. And you have to put yourself in those situations. You know, we can look back at the text, and we can decipher through things. But if you're hearing it live, you probably think this is all the same event. Now, there are some key buts or some before this happens type of language in here. But again, try to put yourself in that mindset. And again, we want to link to this prediction here by Jesus back to 1944 when he enters the city before the Passion Week, and he is weeping over the city because its walls are going to be torn down. So he's making this prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to be coming. And he explains, or he begins this explanation with a word of warning, of caution, to not be led astray, to persevere um, as believers, to hold true to the faith through the hard times that would be coming. So this would be a word of hope for his listeners. It would be a word of hope for the audience that Luke is writing to, and then for us today as well. Perseverance, to stick to something despite the hardships. It's not always an easy thing to do, especially in a calm, collected, or faithful way. Normally through hardships, people respond with anxiety, with fear. But to know the truth ahead of time is important because there would be false messiahs, there would be false prophets coming predicting doom and gloom, predicting things contrary to what Jesus has said, claiming to know things that even Jesus did not know in terms of the day and the hour. You know, the people should not assume that the wars, the disturbances, the tumults would all mean the end of everything. 
or even the immediate destruction of the temple. So what we have to do is we have to be able to recognize the seasons. We have to be able to recognize the temperatures of what's going around. You know, we won't know the day or the hour, but we can recognize signs as things are getting closer. There's always that imminence that, that, that is on our minds that he can return at any moment. But again, you balance that with an overzealousness of the, that imminence um, to where you're so focused on that that it distracts you from the commands that Jesus has given. We want to be mindful of that. Go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 5 with me. In Acts chapter 5, we learn a little bit more about the early church, and we see Peter and some of the apostles, they're out, they're doing many signs and wonders, they're healing people, there's miracles, they're preaching the gospel message. It is a wonderful time. But then they get arrested and they're called before the leaders, um, and they're told to stop. And Peter responds by saying, hey, we have to listen to God, not man. And then he goes on and he gives like a little mini gospel message slash dig at the current Jewish leaders in verses 30 and 32. And this enrages the leaders. They're ready to kill them on the spot. But then this man Gamaliel steps up and he says something. And I want to kind of read from what he says to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 35. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if, it is, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But as if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of, name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Love that passage. That they found that they were found counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's so beautiful. But you know, you see what uh, Galileo says here. You know, he, he basically says, look, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. If it's of man, it's just going to fizzle out anyway. Now, I could be assuming this, but I would say that he's more on the lines of this is of man because their leader's already dead. Just give us some time. They'll scatter. Just let this go. Okay? But when we think about what he says here, he references two other people that had come before. So it's not like this is something completely new, that there would be false messiahs or people claiming to be a somebody, having some information um, you know, you have this guy, uh, Judas, that comes out during the time of the census. Some historians dated around 6 AD, who led a tax revolt. He was killed. And then before him, Thudius, very similar. Uh, even you go back before that, and, you know, you think of Judas Maccabeus, who led a revolt as well. But, you know, that's, that's then. What about today? Just think about our time and the time that we've been alive. 
Jim Jones, David Koresh, the Hale-Bob Comet, the Mayan calendar. We're full of the same types of things. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, as we flip back to Luke here, you know, as we look at verses 11 through 19, this is kind of a section that's going to be talking about some of the later wars, wars that would be preceding his return. The disciples might not have understood this, but again, think of the time that Luke has written. It's written sometime in the early to mid-60s. So by the time they get this letter in their hands, um, within the decade, the temple would be destroyed. There would be the dispersion. So then they would look at this passage differently in terms of the understanding that it's not one event. And then you fast forward to where our understanding is today. And we look at these signs, we look at these events, and we try to, to plug things in. And our understanding has grown a little bit. You know, as we look at uh, some of these wars, as we look at some of these signs, Jesus says, you know, they're going to be imprisoned by the Gentiles. They're going to be dispersed. And then he switches back again in verses 20 through 24 to the destruction of Jerusalem, how Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So within this general overview of those 13 verses, Jesus is calling the people to persevere through trials and hardships, through imprisonment, through beatings, through death. Through all of these things, it's going to provide an opportunity to be a witness. Is that how you view your trials? Is that how you view your hardships that you go through? As an opportunity to bear witness to the truth. I've found in my life, it is when you are at your most vulnerable that people are really listening. You know, as I scan the room on Sundays, if I'm just teaching straight from the word, I can see, ah, what's my, what am I having for lunch? Or I'm seeing, you know, dazed looks or sleepy eyes. But when I talk about Elaine, when I talk about my struggles, when I talk about what matters in life, heads perk up. People begin to listen. You know, when you're at your most vulnerable, people listen. They want to see what your response is, how you're going to react, especially for the church. I can... There's so many times through my life where when people know that I'm a pastor, they watch how I respond in certain situations. When people know you're a Christian, they're taking notice of the language you, listen, you use, the music you listen to, how you're acting on a Monday morning or a Saturday night. You know, and, and Jesus says, in these types of moments, the Spirit will come and give you the words to say. I think that it's very important for us to understand. There's sometimes, you know, as it says here, you won't have to meditate beforehand. The way I want to interpret that today, to give us this understanding. So many times in our faith, we can get set in this mindset of, well, let me pray on this for a couple weeks and then I can get back to you. 
Sometimes in life, things will happen where you don't have that time, and you have to act justly and rightly in that situation. And the way that you do that is by walking with the Spirit. Our faith is not just from tragedy to tragedy and then whatever I want to do in the middle. It's an everyday thing, a moment-by-moment thing where we are walking and keeping in step with the Spirit, and we are being directed by Him. If we're only depending on God when tragedy strikes, we're missing out. Can God use us? Absolutely. But it's very important for us to stay in the Word, to stay in the, in the steps of the Spirit, trusting that He is our mouthpiece. Because again, we can, we can conjecture, we can hypothesize, hypotheticalize, I'm making that word up, um, all we want before it happens. But it's in that moment when your faith meets the road, when it's going to be tested, that all of this is going to come out. And what you're putting in will come out. You know, when tragedy strikes, what is your instinct? What do you go back to? You know, in counseling, it's called language one. You go back to the rawness of your emotion. Is it going to be worldly? Is it going to be godly? Because again, it's going to be a witness. So every moment of the day, we need to understand this ministry of the Spirit working in us. I love the, the gift of, of wisdom and of knowledge and how the Spirit works so powerfully in those ways. There's so many times that I'm praying for you all and I'll, I'll send you a text or something like that because the Lord has put you on my heart to send different scripture verses, to send different encouragements. You know, you think, you think about how the, the, the Spirit works in our lives. We have to depend on Him more because the Spirit working through the people determines a powerful witness to the Gentiles. And we are the same. As believers, Jesus says you're going to be turned in by your family members. You're going to be hated for His namesake. Some of you will be put to death. Now looking at verses 18 and 19, uh, as it says, you know, but not a hair on your head will perish, you know, or in 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, obviously, this is not a works-based salvation verse, but instead, it's just security in, in the eternal promises that we have in Jesus, understanding that it is only through him, and we endure in the faith through the hardships that we face because of him. So we look at these passages here in verses 11 through 19, and we try to figure out a lot of times what phrase applies to what. Uh, Now, some of this timing, sure, it could be around the time of the destruction of the temple because you have imprisonments, you have beatings, you have people being killed for their faith. Um, I think that it can continue to pass down through Luke's audience to show us persistently that as believers we can expect persecution, we can expect suffering, And that's hard for us to understand in America because we're pretty comfortable. But think about our brothers and sisters around the world and what they're facing. I think it was maybe two weeks ago now 
more assassinations of Christians by the Coptic, or the Coptic Christians in Egypt. People die for their faith, for this faith, every day. Jesus circles back in verse 20 to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, showing how she's going to be surrounded on all sides. Now, this is done in 68 A.D. by Titus. For those that are a part of that time, Jesus warns, get away from Jerusalem, flee. You know, it reminds me of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just run, don't look back. Because God's wrath is coming. God's judgment is coming. You know, he uses that term there in verse 23 in terms of wrath. And again, they would be underfoot um, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, I think that this whole section here lines up well with Daniel chapter 9. If you wanted to spend some time in that this week. Um, David is praying. He is pleading for Jerusalem, for Israel to be spared. He is admitting their sin. And Gabriel comes and gives him an answer. And he says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood. And to, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. You know, desolations, it is like a wasteland. It is complete emptiness, loneliness. It is anguished misery and destruction. It would be a trying time for Israel. Now, the time of the Gentiles, I believe, kind of connects with verse 24. Um, you know, in terms of that generation, a normal generation would be 20 to 30 years. So by the time that Luke is writing this, one of those generations would have already passed. So I think that this time of the generations um, is significant that way. Um, it signifies a period of time where the control and the fate of Jerusalem would not be in the hands of Jews. Some believe that this starts with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 and then continues again until Jesus comes. You know, you think about the history of Israel. Um, even as they have their own land, they still have somebody that is over them, whether it's the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. So even while Jesus was on the earth, they were still under the Roman oppression. And it wasn't until, you know, somewhat recently um, that Israel got its land again. You know, you think about this time of the Gentiles. When does it end? You know, many people thought in the 50s that Jesus was coming back very soon because Israel was just made a state at the end of the 40s. They just had two major world wars. They had rumors of war going on with the Cold War. They saw a lot. I mean, it was definitely a step in the right direction, but we continue to wait even to today. I like to think of 2 Peter 3 in this, in that God is patient, waiting for, for those, waiting for the church to evangelize, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we see these signs, and we like these signs a lot, don't we? We like to try to interpret these signs. Jesus continues from verses 25 through 33, talking about different signs that would preclude his second coming. That there would be signs in the heavens, in the stars. And you think about all the predictions that happen. There's been a lot. 
I don't know how many asteroids have been predicted to hit the earth, probably at least 20 a year. Um, you think about, um, as, as I said, the Mayan calendar predicting the last day in 2012. We look to the sun and the moon. You think about this, how, this past year. Saturn and Jupiter were lined up and it was going to look like the Bethlehem star. There's a lot going around. Well, Jesus is coming back. He came with the first Bethlehem star. Now it's here again. Every single blood moon. Oh, it's today. You better be ready. Time and time again, you have people that come up and say exactly when things are going to happen. And I think that there's a difference in how we can understand these situations. There's a balance between the expectation of his return and what I'm going to call hysteria that people can exhibit through these events. Hysteria that borders on fear and conspiracy theories. You know, if the hysteria that you might have is based on the outlook of others and your desire, your heart for them to hear the gospel message to be saved, then fine, continue go spreading the gospel message. But if that hysteria cripples you into fear and paralyzes you because you're afraid of what might happen, that's the wrong attitude and the wrong thing, way to th- look at this stuff because our security is found in Jesus. Our hope is in the salvation that we have. It's not in our ability to interpret these signs. It's in him and him alone. After these events, Jesus, events and signs, Jesus says, you know, you will see him coming back on a cloud. Luke picks this up again in Acts chapter 1 as the angels tell that same thing to the, to the disciples. And you look and see what Jesus says here. When you see these things, straighten up, raise your, ha- your heads, for your d- redemption draws near. I believe that you know, this includes, obviously, the coming of the clouds. We have to understand, um, many times when we look at the signs in the heavens, that there's a few reactions that we can have. You know, every time that there's a major earthquake, tsunami, famine, disease, tragedy, people cry out to God. Sometimes it's, uh, I remember you, so to speak, that you're there. Help us through this hard time. And they develop this healthy-ish type of fear of God. But it doesn't last. You know, what these events should do is to remind us that we live in a broken, fallen world. And that human life is frail. That we are but mist and vapors. That we come and go. And it should draw us back to the Father. Anything that, another thing I should say that happens when earthquakes, when tragedies strike, is sometimes people get more hardened away from the Lord. They, they blame Him for these reasonings. Or they're desensitized because it's happening so frequently. And they miss that, that calling back to Him, that drawing back to Him. It becomes too commonplace. Now, again, we should have a healthy understanding of this when we respond to these events. We should be anticipating his coming, but we should not be fearful. He then gives this parable of the fig tree to show the truth of his words. That these things are going to happen just as the same way that you look at this budding fig tree to show that summer is on its way. You know, there's certainty in the promises of Jesus' words that we need to hold on to. And again, as I look at verse 32, 
the generation being of the Gentiles. That time of the Gentiles, linking that back up to verse 24. Jesus, is, Jesus ends his teaching with a warning and an instruction. The end times were coming, so the disciples needed to be ready for it. <clears throat> they should not get caught up in the cares of this world. That day, meaning the day that he returns, would come suddenly. It would come on all of the earth. So this isn't speaking of the, the judgment of Jerusalem, but rather the end times. And he's telling his disciples, do not be selfish, do not be self-indulgent, do not be worried about the cares of this world. Do not be so entangled with these things that are going to pass away that you lose sight of what's important in your faith. This is why perseverance matters. And he gives them an instruction. They need to stay awake and to pray for strength. It's often said from the pulpits in America that the Church of America is asleep. As I joked a little bit before, being up here, you can see everybody's eyes. Everybody's making sure they're looking at me now. But too often, we get lulled into comfort. Too often, we don't, we don't take things seriously enough. We fall asleep. We get zoned out. We get bored with reading Scripture. It's not as entertaining as other things. Even though this is the most life-giving thing that you can do. Jesus is saying to recognize the times. The times are short and the imminence of his return can be today. You know, do not watch for the signs and think, well, this still needs to happen, this needs to happen, and then this over here needs to happen. So I got time. I can still live worldly and do what I want because I've got time. And then on the opposite side, don't try to just fit things in. Okay, this fits this, this fits that. Here's this, so it's going to be three Tuesdays from next Tuesday. And that's when Jesus is coming back. You know, we need to have a healthy balance, understanding that he is going to come back, watching for his return. But he has given us things to do. And we need to set out as the people of God to do those things, awaiting his return, understanding that he is the master and we are the servant, and that we are to be ambassadors to this lost and dark world. Now Luke, he writes this last verse. Uh, that Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives to stay at night. And I really want to focus on this for a moment. You know, you, you think about what's going on. It's the Passover. The city's packed. So he goes outside of the area to rest. And then he comes back each day with the people at the temple waiting to hear him. Church, we are busy. We have so many things going on in this life. But my prayer, I mean, I desperately pray this, even for my own life, is that when we wake up in the morning, we would desire so much to hear from the voice of God, to listen to his teachings, to be at his feet as these people were at this time. Not just out of sense of a duty for like, okay, 10 minutes, I check mark this off but a longing, a desire, a hunger for his word to be in us, 
We talked about it last night at the Truth Project. In terms of that relationship between God and man, it needs to be priority in our life. It needs to sustain us. It needs to fill us. Many times, even as a pastor, as I go through ministry, you get weighed down and bogged down through the stuff of life that I feel a lot of times like the church in Ephesus where you have lost sight of your first love. Pastors many times lose sight of that ministry because ministry just chews you up at times. We have to hold on to that first love. You know, when I'm counseling with married couples, I always say, continue to date. Date your spouse. Continue to pursue your spouse because relationships take work. The same is true in our relationship with Jesus. If we're not putting that time in, then the relationship is going to suffer. And you look, you can look at your own marriage. How would you rate it? No elbows. I would say that the state of your marriage many times will reflect the state of your relationship with Jesus. The ability that you have to pour into that, into the relationship with Jesus, is an outgrowth then to your marriage. It's not the other way around. He is first. Your spouse is second. It's got to come that way. That's where your strength comes. That's where your source comes from. But it takes time. It takes investment. And again, my heart and my prayer for you is that our desire would be sit at his feet each morning, waiting, anticipating. Because yes, hard times are going to be coming. And the church in America needs to be shaken. We are way too comfortable. So we need to prepare our hearts and minds for what is coming, whether it's imprisonment, whether it's death, whether it's persecution. We are not to be sheltered in America just because we live in a free country or we have laws on the book. All of that will pass away. We have to persevere in the hard times and trials, and we do this by staying awake and understanding the warning of the false teachers and messiahs and praying for strength to endure through those trials, knowing that even through those trials, we can still be a witness for him. I say it every week. We are called to be his ambassadors for Christ. A similar theme that we talked about this morning from the Old Testament, where Abram was called to be a blessing to the nations. He is to go tell the other nations about God, and we are called to do that same thing. We have the good news. We need to be that blessing. How blessed are the feet, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. Church, let's do this because he is coming. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at the turmoil around us in this world, Lord, oftentimes we can get anxious. Oftentimes we can think it's gonna be tomorrow, that it's gonna be today. But Lord, you have given us today as the opportunity. Tomorrow is not promised. So let us, let us 
do for today what needs to be done for today. I pray that you would help us to discern clearly the opportunities that we have to be your witnesses, to share your good news. Lord, that we can have a longing and a desire to sit at your feet, to invest in the relationship that we have with you because you are our strength. You are a source of hope. You are our security and promises. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for what we have placed our security in in the things of this world. Help us to repent from those things and turn only to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.